Well, good morning. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. We are continuing our study through the book of Romans. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 30 this morning. We've been walking through Romans 8, which is perhaps one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. If you can say that about a part of the Bible, it's all just unbelievably good. And Romans 8 is just a reminder of just how good God is. Now, as you find Romans chapter 8, let me ask, uh, who likes waiting in this room? Nobody likes waiting, right? Uh, Do you ever enjoy whenever you're just sitting in traffic or whenever maybe there's some inconvenience where, you know, someone that you have a meeting with ends up saying, hey, I'm going to be 30 minutes late, and you're just stuck there waiting. Uh, here are some questions to maybe like a diagnostic question to discover if, if you're one of these people like me who maybe struggles with impatience, maybe you're always in a hurry. Have you ever put a location or a destination into your GPS Whenever you already know how to get there, but you're just putting it into your GPS to figure out the fastest route to take or so that you can know if you need to go a different direction so that you're not stuck in traffic. Maybe, maybe you struggle with waiting. You struggle with waiting or maybe impatience if you've ever ordered food ahead for a place that you know that you will go to, grab it off the shelf, and then just eat it there. Have you ever done that at Chipotle? I've done that. Like I order ahead online just so that I don't have to wait in the line and then I grab it off the shelf and eat it there. Maybe, maybe this is just like a personal struggle for mine. I don't do it all the time, but I, but I have done it. Uh, if you've ever ran a red light, that one I was like looking to like really hit everybody because you don't want to stop and, and get stuck there at the red light because you've got, you've got places to go. You've got things to do. We have a difficulty with waiting. A lot of times because we have kind of our our own agenda, our own plan, and waiting gets in the way of that. I think sometimes waiting is also where some of our most difficult memories have been made, some of the most difficult moments in life. Uh, I think to two specific instances whenever I was sitting in a waiting room. Uh, One of those was whenever Abby was pregnant with our firstborn. And uh, after a couple sonograms and they invited us back and uh, they said that Brooks's heart wasn't developing properly and uh, blood wasn't pumping in the right way. And so we had to go and get, go to children's, um, get another sonogram and uh, figure out like what was going on. And while we waited, waited for the results, I just remember like praying Psalm 139 again and again, knowing that God is sovereign over the way that he has designed us. And, but, but that's a, that's a moment of difficult waiting. Um, I think about like after Brooks was born. Abby had to have a, a very serious surgery. This was about four years ago. And, um, and I mean, any, any surgery is serious, uh, despite how, how they might say, like, this is minimally invasive or anything like that. But I just remember sitting in the waiting room for those hours and just, I mean, there was nothing that I could find on my phone to distract me. Uh, you're just looking at, you know, your wife's initials name on uh, her initials on the screen. And the process is being updated gradually, and it just feels like time is moving so slow. We don't like waiting uh, for a myriad of reasons, and yet whenever we get to Romans 8, specifically in verses 24 and 5, Paul describes the Christian life as one of waiting, waiting patiently with hope. 
Now we know that the Christian life is more than that. We have eternal life. We have great joy. Uh, we enjoy the, the family aspect of church. I mean, there's so many blessings to be enjoyed. And at the same time, Paul honestly says that the Christian life is one of waiting, waiting for a future hope. And so we wait patiently with hope. So how do we wait? How do we wait in the suffering? How do we navigate suffering well? If there was to be perhaps an overarching theme for verses 18 through 30 as a whole, it would be to not waste your waiting. Because in, in the waiting, God is drawing you near. He's teaching you about himself. He might be chiseling those parts off of you that are impatient, that still struggle to believe that he is good so that you would know who he is. In the midst of the suffering, in the midst of waiting, I want you to remember this truth. That because God is good and always works things for your good, you can speak to him, you can rest in him, and you can trust him. So we're going to get two certainties this morning that you can cling to in the midst of your suffering, and then three actions that are going to flow from that. Speaking to him, resting in his promises, and then trusting the process of suffering. Now, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we're reminded that verses 18 through 30 uh, more broadly deal with the way that the Holy Spirit works in the life of a believer to sanctify you, to grow you in Christ-likeness. But they also specifically deal with suffering in the Christian life. And suffering takes on all kinds of forms. Uh, suffering, for some, is a consequence of sin. Because you, you disobeyed God, you made a bad choice, and now there are consequences that flow from that. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you suffer simply because you live in a broken world, because sin has marred everything. And because of things completely out of your control, you face suffering. Some, some of you might be facing suffering right now, uh, not because of something that you did, but because you've been sinned against, and now you feel the pain of that, the pain of a strained relationship, uh, the pain of something that you couldn't control, the pain of regret. We all face suffering of different kinds, and it can take on a form perhaps as small as a cavity in your mouth that you can't stop thinking about to something as, as difficult as losing a job in a career that you love unexpectedly to dealing with a parent's divorce or a loss of a loved one. Maybe your suffering isn't that specific. It's more general. Maybe it's fear that you wrestle with or anxiety, or just confusion. Maybe your suffering is the result of ultimately not having a relationship with God, or having a relationship with God and forgetting that you do, and that He is good and always works things out for your good. And so I'm hoping that as we immerse ourselves in this text again, we're reminded of the goodness of God, we're reminded of the promise that God makes to every believer, and that we're able to trust Him even in the process of what might feel like difficult suffering. We saw last week that verses 18 through 26 deal with this future hope that we have. That's why I gave you the equation that God's future glory for the believer, because we will be resurrected, because we will one day be in a body that's no longer tempted by sin, because we will one day be in the presence of God and every tear will be wiped away, because that is our future glory, our future glory is greater than our present suffering. But in the meantime, how do, we, how do we suffer well? How do we glorify God even in the waiting? And that's what verses 26 through 30 deal with. 
The analogy that I used last week is uh, in, in the comparison of suffering being like a really heavy backpack that you just kind of walk around with in the Christian life. And so what verses 18 through 26 do is they take some of the biggest weights out of that backpack, wondering, hey, is it possible for me to have a relationship with God? It says, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're adopted into the family of God if you've trusted in Christ. It's a big weight that's now lifted out. Fear of the future, like what, what in the world will happen to me when I die? Well, if you know Christ, you will spend eternity in his presence. That's a really big weight that's now lifted out of fear that you no longer have to deal with. But there are some weights of suffering in the Christian life that will not be removed on this side of heaven. And so Paul here is coming alongside us and saying, hey, this is, this is a long journey. I want you to run the race well. I want you to finish well. And so as you continue to carry that suffering, be it minor or major in your life, here are two certainties that you can cling to and three actions that flow out of that. Here's the first certainty, our future hope in the waiting. If you want a broad category, these two certainties are our future hope and our present help. Our future hope and our present help. And this first certainty is our future hope in the waiting. Now this will in some ways be recap, but I hope that it adds depth to even what we talked about last week that we have a future hope in the waiting as we suffer. To remind you really quickly of what Romans 8, verses 24 and 25 says, Paul writes this, he says, For in this hope, and the fact that we will one day be resurrected as Christ was, that our bodies will be completely made new and the whole world will be restored, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait with patience. How can we do that? Because we know that we have a hope that was given to us in our salvation. That because we know God, regardless of what our suffering may be like here, we can take great comfort in the fact that we have a future hope. One of the reasons that I had Jimmy read Psalm 23 this Sunday is because there is a line in Psalm 23 that describes suffering in the Christian life. It, it says that even though we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, how is suffering described? It's described as a valley where there is this shadow of death. Now, why does David use that language whenever he writes Psalm 23? What, what is he referring to? How can we interpret this passage as those who are on this side of the cross look back to those verses? Well, we know that, that the consequence of sin is death, not just physical death, but spiritual death, being separated from God, that because of our sin, we are separated from God. We do not have a relationship with him, and the consequence of that sin is death. But God, being rich in mercy and love, sent his son to take on that punishment for us, so that on the cross, Jesus died in the place of sufferers and sinners. So that if we would trust in his death and in his resurrection, then the wrath of death that we deserved was absorbed fully by Christ so that we could have life. And so that means in the midst of your suffering, it is only a valley of the shadow of death. That even 
if, if your suffering ultimately reaches the great pinnacle of your physical death, it will only be like the shadow of death because you will have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know sometimes it's like, okay, well, what, is, what does David mean when he talks about the shadow of death? And this might be a helpful way to think about it. If you've ever been uh, driving on the interstate and it's kind of that moment in the day where the sun is just kind of shining really bright through your driver's side window and you're squinting and there's no angle that you can turn the, the visor flap to get it out of your eyes and it's just really bright. And then, and then there's a moment in which a semi-truck comes zooming past you and as that semi-truck comes beside you, you can finally see. The shadow is, has gone past you and now the, the brightness has covered, is, the brightness from the sun is now covered, it's been eclipsed, and you've, you've now passed through the shadow of that semi-truck. Now here's where I'm going with that. Would you rather be in the path of that semi-truck and experience the brunt of it hitting your car while you were driving, or would you rather simply be in the shadow of it as it passes by? The gospel says, that Jesus took the brunt of death so that no matter how difficult your suffering in this life might be, it will be as if it is only the shadow of death. And Christ as a good shepherd is walking with you in that. Don't you love the pace of that? He's not dragging you through the valley of the shadow of death saying, hey, get your act together. You shouldn't really be thinking about this right now. You shouldn't be struggling with believing who I am. No, he's walking with you through the valley of the shadow of death, assuring you that no matter how difficult this life might be because your future glory is secure and because Christ took the full brunt of death in your place, if you trust in him, then it will only be a shadow, a temporary moment on your way to eternal glory. Is that a comfort if you're a Christian, that you can rest in that in the midst of difficulty? There's an invitation here for you as well if the thought of the future scares you, if the fear of death scares you, as you contemplate your own mortality and you would say, I don't have that hope, I don't have that peace, I don't have that assurance, there is an invitation here to trust in Christ who took upon death that you might have life. So we have this future hope in our waiting, but not only that, we have a present help in our weakness. The second certainty is that we have a present help in our weakness. If you have your Bibles, we'll read verses 26 through 30 together. Paul writes this, he says, likewise the Spirit helps us, he's our present help, in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What do we find in these verses? This second certainty that we have a present help in our weakness. I think one of the reasons that 
maybe this passage uh, can be difficult to take to heart is that we don't like to admit that we are weak. We don't like to admit that we are insufficient to carry our own trouble, to deal with our own stuff. And yet what Paul is writing, this truth is forcing us to acknowledge that we are dependent, that we are weak, that we do need the Lord. I think it's important for us to be able to confess our weakness to God. Uh, this is something that, that is helpful. I think even as I, as I read the prayer cards that come in, I love the fact that our church is a church that, that realizes we are, we are needy people. We need God. And prayer is evidence of that. I think the important uh, takeaway maybe for, for you to recognize here as you think about suffering is that you have to admit your weakness to the Lord. You have to admit where you need help. And I think sometimes uh, we like to shrug that off. We like to say, well, you know, like, you know, I mean, this sin isn't really something I'm struggling with. Like, it's only like whenever I'm angry or hungry or or lonely, but like, really, I mean, I could, I could stop dealing with this anytime I wanted. Or maybe we could say, you know, like that happened in the past, but the, the stuff that happened between, you know, me and him, like, like it doesn't really like weigh on me. I'm not bothered by that. And yet we need to recognize that the, the journey of suffering begins wherever you are, not wherever you want to be. Like you have to honestly come before God and say, you know what, I am weak. I really need help with this besetting sin. Yeah, I, I am weak. I, I struggle so much with discontentment or having joy for other people who, who get what I want at some times. We, we come before God and, and we admit we are weak. What would it look like for you to humbly admit that you are weak in this moment? To cry out to God in prayer as you acknowledge your weakness and receive his strength. You see, you have a present help in our weakness, and there are three actions that flow out of this. Speaking to God in prayer, resting in God's promises, and trusting God's process. I think it's important here that we're called to action even in the midst of our weakness. I think sometimes whenever we're suffering, it can be easy to believe the lie that we're helpless and nothing that we do matters. And yet Paul is going to say here, your actions do matter. There are choices to be made. There are things to be done to remind you of the goodness of God and his present help in the midst of your weakness. The first action we see flowing from this passage is speaking to God in prayer. How are we helped? We have a God who listens. We have a God who hears. We have a God who has initiated the conversation through his word, by his Holy Spirit, and we respond by speaking to him in prayer. Look at verse 26. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We admit that we are weak. What is the specific weakness that Paul is saying we have in the midst of our suffering? He says, well, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever been praying that something would happen? Maybe uh, a specific circumstance would be changed or a situation uh, would turn out differently than it's currently going, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, maybe I'm just not praying the right things. Like, I'm even fasting in prayer. Like, maybe, like am I just asking God for the wrong things? And what we learn here is, even from your limited perspective, and even whenever you pray things that aren't completely in line 
with God's will. The Holy Spirit, who lives in you, is interceding on your behalf with groanings that are too deep for words that go past the English vocabulary so that the will of God would be accomplished in your life. Isn't that so comforting? That even in my limited perspective, and even whenever I don't know what to say to God, I cannot hinder the work of God in my life because the Holy Spirit who dwells within me and within you is praying to God the Father, God who searches hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit to bring about the will of God in your life. So pray. Pray bold prayers. Pray big prayers. Pray dependent prayers. Pray prayers of lament when you're hurting. Speak to God in prayer as a present help in the midst of your weakness, admitting to God that you are weak and you need his help. We see here that the Holy Spirit prays according to the will of God because we don't know what to pray and we don't pray what we ought to. He almost acts as a translator. Uh, as, we, as we seek to cry out to God, I was reminded of uh, a story this past week whenever I was thinking about this that my friend told me. And uh, he was doing some mission work in a place where the native tongue was Spanish. And so, you know, he's doing his best as a native English speaker to present the gospel in Spanish. And so he is getting to, you know, the point where he is saying, God will save you from your sins. And I don't know Spanish, but I know many of you do. And so what he meant to say is that God will save you from your pecado, right? That's the Spanish word for sin. Okay. What he said is, God will save you from your pescado. So what, and some of you are laughing because you know what that means. He just declared this beautiful truth that God will save you from your fish. <laughs> and I have no doubt that God can do that. Uh, but, but the truth he was trying to convey is that God will save you from your sin. And so quickly the, the translator jumped in and he's like, no, like this is what he means to say. A little bit more urgency to that one. God will save you from your sins, uh, not just your fish, if that's like a common trouble that you have. And man, like the Lord could use that. Uh, but, but the Holy Spirit, as he, as he is in us, he, he hears the groaning of our hearts. He groans to God the Father. And he, and he is speaking to God the Father saying, we know what you need. And so trust. Trust us. Because as you speak to God in prayer, God knows what you need. You know, I'm reminded of whenever Paul prayed and he said, let this thorn in the flesh depart from me. And what did he receive instead of that? I mean, think about someone, I mean, who's more spiritual than Paul? And he's praying and what does, what does God say? Keep the thorn and realize that my grace is sufficient for you. That's what I'm doing in you. And so, so as we speak to God in prayer, the Holy Spirit is, is, knows the that the Father is searching our heart. The Father knows the mind of the Spirit that is work within, in work, at work within us, and he's bringing these things to pass so that the will of God would take place in your heart. Now, um, I want to quickly say that uh, some people look at this passage and they would say, well, the groaning that is too deep for words is speaking in tongues, the gift of speaking in tongues. And what I would say is as we look at this passage, we see that this is a gift like the fact that the Holy Spirit groans on your behalf is something that is promised to every single believer. And the gift of tongues, 
as you see in 1 Corinthians um, or in 1 Peter, is not promised to every believer. And so we'd say this is not talking about that. So whether you think, um, you know, that gift is still active in the church today and people have that gift, or you're someone who would say, I don't think that that's normative for our time. Either way, we would look at this passage and say, because this is something that is for every believer to claim, um, both both people on both sides of that issue would say, I don't think this is where we could see that being taught. What do we see here? Is that you can pray knowing that God's will will be accomplished. Well, how can you know that? Because God has given you a promise. Well, what is that promise? Look to verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How do we know that whenever we pray, when we speak to God and the Holy Spirit speaking within us is accomplishing the will of God? We have that promise in verse 28 that God is always working things out for good, that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, which leads us to the second action. We rest in God's promises. We can rest in this promise that God gives us here. Now, as we look at this familiar verse, I think it's helpful to walk slowly through it. Look at the confidence that Paul has. He says, we know. Believer, you know. He doesn't say we are almost positive or we are fairly certain. He says, we know. Well, what do we know? That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's important for us to see here that all things are working together for good in the hands of God, but he doesn't say that all things are good. That's an important distinction to make because evil isn't good. The sins that we commit are not good. There are things in this life, in this world, that are not good, and yet God, who is sovereign, is working all things together for good. This might be a silly example, but uh, a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, um, Abby made a batch of chocolate chip cookies, and I'm convinced they're the best chocolate chip cookies that can be made. Bakery boys got some. There you go. They can attest to that. Uh, and so, but, but think about it for a second. If I was just to walk into our kitchen when all of the ingredients are on the counter and just start taking spoonfuls of things, it would be disgusting. I don't want like a spoonful of salt straight in my mouth or a spoonful of flour just to like munch on because I want a snack. The, the thought of eating a raw egg turns my stomach inside out. Like I don't want to do that. Even if it's healthy, I don't want to do that. I'm not gonna bite into a stick of butter. I mean, the only thing that would be edible like out of the whole thing might be like, you know, the spoonful of sugar or, you know, a handful of chocolate chips. But, but those ingredients separate are, are not desirable. And yet whenever someone works them together and they're heated in the oven, what do they produce? They produce something that is amazing, something that is really good, something that, that we crave even. And here what, what Paul is saying is that God takes those moments in your life, something that might be as bland as flour or something as sweet as that promotion or greeting a newborn that might feel like chocolate chips or that phone call that you like can't believe that you just had that turned your world upside down. That 
tastes like a raw egg, that somehow in God's sovereignty, he is working all things together for good. Why do we know that? Because God is good and because he always works things together for your good. And you can rest in that promise. I think the difficulty is we always want to know how these things are working out for good. That's, that's the issue, right? We don't just want to receive the promise. We want to say, how? God, show me. Like, give me the ability to look into the future and see how all of this pain and suffering is actually going to lead to something that's great for me. It reminds me of the lyrics from uh, an artist named John Bellion. And he has this song called Maybe IDK. It stands for I don't know. I'm super hip. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm quoting a popular artist, and I just used that acronym. So here we go. But there is, there is humility in, in the lyrics of this chorus that, I mean, I don't, like, I don't know where he's at, but I can resonate with it. In the midst of looking at Romans 8, 28, he says, I guess if I knew tomorrow, I guess I wouldn't need faith. I guess if I never fell, I guess I wouldn't need grace. I guess if I knew his plans, then I guess he wouldn't be God. So maybe I don't know. He says it three more times. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't know. And I don't know if John Bellion knows the words of the verse of Deuteronomy 29, 29 that says the secret things belong to the Lord. But there is humility and a, a humble trust that is developed in being able to rest in Romans 8, 28. Knowing that we may not know how God is working all things together for our good, but we never have to wonder if God is working all things together for our good. And there are two descriptors for those who, who know the Lord, who can claim this promise. Uh, this promise could almost be compared to a check that can only be deposited with a signature on the back of it. So this promise is given, and it's like, this promise is amazing. And yet, it is only those who have claimed the name of Jesus Christ who can actually apply this promise to their lives. What do we learn? He says that they are, they are those who love God, and they are those who are called according to his purpose. These two descriptors. You love God, and you're called according to his purpose. So the first question is, do you love God? Does this promise apply to you? John Owen, the Puritan, describes our love for God in four ways. He said, we reveal that we love God through resting in him. You're not, you're not trying to like work for his favor all the time because you know that Christ has accomplished everything so you can rest in him. By delighting in him. Like, commands are not a burden. This actually teaches me how to live. I love walking with God. It's a delight, rest, delight. Third, reverence. We revere God. We know he is holy. We approach him knowing that we deserve death, and yet he's given us life. And fourth and finally, we obey him. We long to obey God. We love God. Do you love God? Have you been called according to his purpose? If you love God, it's evidence that you've been called according to his purpose. Now, whenever we speak of calling, there are two different calls. There's a general call, which is the call for everyone to, to be saved. Come and trust in Christ. That is a general call. But there's also an effectual call. The call that, that comes to you maybe whenever you're listening to a sermon or maybe whenever you're reading scripture or whenever a friend uh, explains the gospel to you. It's almost like that moment that Jesus is walking alongside the Sea of Galilee and he specifically calls out the name of Peter. 
and says, come follow me. And Peter drops his nets and says, yeah, I'm, I'm giving my whole life to this Messiah. Like, I, that's an effectual call. Whenever Jesus sees Matthew sitting at the tax booth, he says, come follow me. And that's that moment that you realize God is calling me out of my sin and darkness. He's calling me out of death into marvelous light. And that call is what enables you to claim this promise as your own. And so you can know that God is working all things out for your good if you have responded to that call and Jesus is Lord and you now love him as a result of it. We don't always know how this works out, but we can look through church history. We can look at scripture and see that God often works things out for our good in ways that we can see. And that's really kind of him. He doesn't have to do that. There's a story that uh, Charles Spurgeon told uh, about a martyr in the mid-1500s who was about to be martyred, burned at the stake because Queen Mary was on the throne. And so as he was, you know, making his march to the place in which he would be burned at the stake, it was about uh, a day's journey, a little less than a day's journey. Some of the guys that were walking with him to take him to the place where he would lose his life, they were beating him up and they were just kind of kicking him and stuff. And, And in that moment, one of them kicks him really hard and his leg breaks. And when that happens, they say, do you still trust in your God? And he looks at these two men and he says, Because I love God, I can trust that God is working all things out for good. So he said, well, how how is this going to be for your good? And so the day day goes on, and he's walking much slower than he did before because he's now limping with this broken leg, and he continues to walk. They're saying, "Do do you still feel like you trust in this promise? But something amazing happened whenever they got to London. The, the trip look, took longer than expected, and whenever they got there, they realized that there was now a new queen in power. That instead of Queen Mary being on the throne, Queen Elizabeth was on the throne, and the fate that he was going to face of being burned at the stake was no longer his fate. And he looks back at these two men, thinking they were leading him to his death, and says, can't you see that God is working all things out for good? that he was able to clutch his broken leg, realizing that it was all a part of God's plan to preserve his life. We see this even in scripture, that Paul, whenever he writes to the Philippians, says, even though I am chained to this guard, I want you to know that this has actually been all part of God's plan because guess what? The guards are starting to talk about Jesus all the way to the point that the gospel is now being shared in the household of Caesar. So I'm okay with these chains. We see that in the story of Joseph and his brothers, even though they sold him into slavery unfairly, that he goes and becomes a part of God's plan for preserving the people of Israel. He looks at his brothers in Genesis 50, 20 and says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That even in the darkest moments, we can trust that God is doing something good. Can we not look at the cross and see that as the perfect example? That on the darkest day of history, God was doing something unbelievably magnificent. That on the day that it looked like all hope was lost, hope had actually come. That God was accomplishing what he said that he promised to do all the way from Genesis 3.15. So that whenever Peter preaches, he says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. God is working all things out. 
According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, even in the difficult things, God is working things out for good. The fact that we can trust in Christ and have life in his name because he cried out on a cross in the moment of his death, it is finished. It's proof of that. So maybe we cling to that truth whenever we can't, we can't see past whatever we're going through. We can look back at what God has done to trust God in what he is doing. I think sometimes this is a difficult passage for us to accept because our definition of good is wrong. The cultural definition of good is having a, a clean bill of health and you know, not, not struggling with anything physically. Or the you know, cultural definition of, of good is having enough money in the bank where you don't have to really worry about things. Having obedient children, going to a job every day that you love. Like all of these are the things that we would often say like that is good. And if those things are true, like those are, those are blessings that God gives. I don't want you to despise those things. But I do want you to see that as Paul is talking about what good is, good is actually becoming more godly. Good is growing near to God in a way that produces Christ-likeness in you. And in that way, all things can work out for your good as you're deepening your relationship with God, trusting him in the process, which leads us to our third action. We trust God in the process. There's nothing more difficult in suffering than thinking that it is pointless, that there's no purpose to it. And yet we are called according to the purpose of God. And one of those purposes, the primary purpose, is to conform us to the image of Christ. It's all starting to make sense that the Holy Spirit is working out the will of God in us, that God is working all things together for our good and his glory, and that brings about the process of becoming more like Christ. And so we can trust God in this process. That one of the primary tools that God uses to shape us is suffering. And in that way, we cannot just endure it, but accept it, to cry out to God in the midst of it, that he is conforming us to the image of Christ in the midst of our suffering. Verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Suffering and pain is all a part of being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God is doing in us. And sometimes it feels like kind of big chunks are being chiseled off of you, and sometimes it's just a little discomfort that is shaping you into the image of Christ, but we can rest assured that God is in the process of making us more like his son. It reminds me of uh, when someone asked Michelangelo, whenever they were looking at that 18-foot tall sculpture of David that he sculpted. They said, how, like, how did you do this? And, and he just simply replied, I removed everything in the block of marble that wasn't David. I just removed all the parts that weren't David. As, as you look at the detail of the veins in his hands, like what, what was he doing? He said, I'm just I'm removing everything that wasn't David in this block of marble. And sometimes whenever we cry out to God in our suffering, we can say, God, what are you doing? Say, 
I'm just lovingly removing every part of you that isn't like Christ so that you can know me better, you can trust me more, so that you can walk with me, so, so that you can actually step into the gifts that I've given you to serve others and to live on mission in the kingdom of God. Like I'm just removing those parts of you that aren't like Christ so that you would enjoy what it means to belong to Christ. So we take great comfort in that. Now, we're going to get to Romans 9 in a couple weeks, but we want to deal with the text that is in front of us as well. And so we're, we're looking at perhaps, you know, if verse 28 is one of the most comforting verses. Maybe verse 29 is like one of the most controversial because we read here that uh, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And so I want to walk through this quickly. Um, some people look at this passage of Scripture and say that uh, God foreknew those who would become Christians in the future. And so he predestined, he determined where they would be in eternity based upon knowing the decision that, that they made. Now, I'll say this is not a primary issue for us. So if you think through first tier, second tier, third tier issues, we put things like the virgin birth and justification by faith alone through grace alone. Like these things are first tier. This is not a first tier issue for us. Um, I've been on staffs where I've served underneath lead pastors who would interpret this passage differently than I would. And so this is a place where we'd say differing interpretations can still worship together in unity. And some people look at this and say, well, God, based upon knowing what someone would do, predetermined um, who would be predestined to know him. Now, here's what I would say um, as, as a caution as I present the way that I would interpret this passage. Uh, we know that God is omniscient. God knows everything. He's always known everything. That is essential to who he is. We also know that God is unchanging, immutable, Right? So, so he never changes. And so here, here's the difficulty. We don't want to say that there was a point in time in which God learned something that he didn't previously know. And we don't want to say that there is a, a point in time in which God now learns a new fact that changes a, a, anything about him because he is unchanging. And so even as you wrestle with these things, this is a mystery, right? There's a reason uh, that there is debate over this, and this doesn't negate human responsibility in any way. But as I look at this passage, what I would say is that God's foreknowing is used in the relational sense. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, that to know somebody is to have a relationship with them. And so God, in his grace, completely independent of anything that we would do on our part, God lovingly and graciously chose by foreknowing, by having a relationship with those. And that foreknowledge is synonymous with his predestination, that God completely in his own mercy and grace chose, he foreknew to predestine. We see this in Jeremiah 1.5, similar language is used. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God isn't just saying, Jeremiah, I knew that you would be a prophet. He's saying, no, I predetermined that you would be a prophet before you ever breathed your first breath. Now, regardless of where you might fall on this issue, 
this should produce praise, not pride. And there's nothing in this that makes us think, well, you know, I was less sinless than the other people that didn't believe. And so that's why I was chosen. Or, you know, I was just able to figure things out more. So that's why God picked me. No, we come to this passage and we say, this is completely a work of God's grace. That whenever I was dead in my sin and had done nothing to earn God's favor, he foreknew me, had a relationship with me and predestined me to be one of his own. Now, you might not agree with how I interpret this passage, and I want to say that's fine. So, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do if you disagree. I'm going to say, can we link arms together, believing that God saves and reach this city and the world with the good news of the gospel? Yes. If you interpret this passage the way that I do, don't be prideful about it. Don't lose friendships over this. Don't create division over this. We come before God realizing that our finite IQ cannot comprehend an infinite God. And there's a lot of room for mystery here. And this does not negate human responsibility, but it also shows us that we are in awe of a sovereign God that can't be fully contained in our minds. What is God doing regardless of the way that you interpret that passage? He is conforming you to the image of his son. Some of you guys might have met my dad last week. Um, if you did, you know what I will look like 40 years from now. Uh, no, 30 years from now. He would be upset with me. And he listens to these every week, so sorry, Dad. Uh, you know what I will look like because people say Kirkland jeans are really strong. And I think both of my boys uh, look like my wife. But you know that as they grow, like they're starting to look like me. And Charlie is starting to look more like his older brother. This passage says that God's genes are strong and you're being conformed to the image of Christ, your elder brother, as you continue to trust him and as you suffer. You're being conformed to the image of Christ. The fact that that word image is used there is recalling what took place in Genesis 1, that Adam was the first man created in the image of God and whenever he was given God's commands, he failed which means the image of God in us was marred. And yet because Christ came, we can once again bear the image of God. How? Because we are conformed to the image of Christ who is God. There's restoration taking place in you through your suffering. And what does this mean that God will accomplish his purpose in you? He predestined, he called, he justified, he will glorify Paul is so certain of this fact that he puts glorified what will happen to you one day in the past tense. And the entirety of those verbs are in the passive tense to show this is what God is doing, not what you have done in your own strength or merit. So Christian, let me ask you to respond in these three ways. To pray, to rest, and to trust. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I'm gonna ask you to do the, th the same three things, to pray, to rest, and to trust. First, in prayer. Maybe you just respond in your journal, on your piece of paper. How do you specifically need to admit your current weakness to God in the midst of sin or suffering? Maybe during our time of communion, you would just voice that to God. How do you need to currently admit your weakness? To say, God, I'm, I'm not sufficient in myself. Maybe for some of you, 
if you're not a Christian, that looks like crying out to God for the very first time and saying, Lord, I recognize that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And yes, I know these things about Jesus who died on the cross and rose again, but I need to claim that promise for myself and to confess your sin and to trust in Christ. Second, rest. Where do you need to apply the truth right now that God is working all things for good? Where do you specifically need to rest that God is doing that and to voice that to him? Perhaps the action step for you here would be to comfort another with that promise, to comfort another with that truth, a family member, a coworker. And third, trust. What insufficient idols might be exposed through your suffering right now? Maybe you just moved to Cincinnati and you're like, I've never really struggled to like, you know, find my place before. Maybe uh, you're, you're like, I'm going through something and I find that what I'm doing is actually just scrolling through YouTube instead of actually dealing with it. Maybe, maybe your, your whole sense of self is wrapped up in someone else's approval. What idols might be exposed through your suffering so that you can say, no, God, you are sufficient? And then what would change about the next week if you completely trusted God in the process. I think for some of you, you would say, you know what, I need to get baptized to declare publicly that I'm trusting in God. Others of you might say, you know, it's a priority shift for me to make God first and foremost, to spend time with him each and every day devotionally. For others, it would be to be connected to other believers. This is what I believe, but I feel like I'm believing it alone. But for others, it, it might be just to embrace the truth that God is working all things out for your good. I want to end with the truth that Hannah read about Christ in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What can you do in your time of need? You can draw near to Christ. He's not annoyed by your neediness. In fact, your neediness is designed to draw you toward him. Do you need grace? Have you messed up this week? Will you mess up this week? Guess what? It's a throne of grace. Do you need mercy because you've failed? Christ is there as merciful Savior. Come to Christ. He will not turn you away in your time of need. So speak, rest, trust. Let's pray.